So I received an email from a few of my students. They wanted to interview me for a class I think they're taking in ethics. They want me to talk about an ethical dilemma so that they can analyze whether or not I screwed up or not. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, and, and so, so here we are in my office at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm about to disclose an ethical dilemma that I've been through in, in my professional life. And I have three students here that will take this information and analyze it and scrutinize and write a whole paper about it. And then we'll see if I screwed up or not, right? Okay, so welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Aaron, why don't you go first? I'm Aaron McLean, couples and family therapy student. I'm Brandy Hannan. I am a, in the master's program for clin- clinical mental health counseling. That's right. I'm Alicia Guthrie Morse for clinical mental health counseling. What questions do you have? Do you do you want me just to present the case, or do you want to ask questions, or what do you want to do? Well, yeah. the The first question is, what is the dilemma in as much detail as confidentiality will allow? Right. I gave it some thought this morning, and. I actually don't run into that many ethical dilemmas when I started thinking about it. In my mind, at first, I thought, oh, man, there's just going to be like a million ethical dilemmas. But I was like, actually, it doesn't happen very often. So, so this one happened a couple weeks ago. Well, no, it probably was about a month ago. I received a phone call from the sister of a very good friend of mine, from 20 years ago. So this is going to be hard to keep track of. So a friend of mine from 20 years ago, her sister, whom I know less well, called me and said that both of their niece is in another program in Seattle getting trained as a therapist and is required to get therapy and wanted me to set her up with a therapist. Does Does this make sense? So this is basically the niece of a friend of mine who wants therapy. Okay. So whenever someone asks me for a referral to a therapist, I immediately go to my referral list that I keep. It's a list of different therapists that I know about and have the contact information for. And a lot of times what I will do is I will recommend students who have gone to Antioch because I know them well and want to you know, bolster their practice. And so uh, I was looking at this list and I came to a name of a student who graduated from Antioch and is my supervisee now. And she's trying to build her practice and she doesn't charge very much. She's willing to, you know, go pretty low in her fee because she's just building her practice. And I immediately thought she would be perfect for this niece because their personalities are so similar. She has a very youthful energy, this therapist, and this potential client is, I think she's just out of her bachelor, so she's 22. And so so the ethical dilemma is, do I refer this niece of a friend whom I know. I know this niece, but not very well. But I know her aunts fairly well. Do I refer her to my supervisee? The supervision relationship is such that my supervisee will be discussing all of her cases in detail with me. I will have access to all of her records. So in a sense, I am referring the niece of a friend to a... Well, not in a sense, 
but literally I'm referring the niece of a friend to a therapist that I will be conferring with that they'll be asking me a lot of questions about how to treat this person. So do you understand the dilemma, I guess, at this point? So are you still in the decision-making process? You haven't? No, I made the choice. You made the choice. I made the choice to refer her to my supervisee. Okay. Even though there's some questions here, I'm curious about what your process was in making that choice. Yeah. Like what you considered? Yeah. So I considered what we call in the business multiple relationships or dual relationships in that I would have a dual relationship with this niece in that she's the niece of my friends and she would also be the client of my supervisee. So I would have a dual relationship with this individual, with this client. Okay. I would also be in a sense encouraging my supervisee to have a dual relationship with this client in that my supervisee would be in a therapist client relationship with this client and also the client would be her supervisor's friend's niece. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm, I'm encouraging and promoting a dual relationship for my supervisee. So that's another consideration because not only do I have an ethical obligation to the client, but I have an ethical obligation to my supervisee because I am supervising that person and I need to be mindful of not harming my supervisee as well. So I'm also putting this client in a position of thinking, what information is my therapist going to tell my super, her supervisor? And is that information going to get back to my aunts? Because my supervisee doesn't have a relationship with her aunts, but her therapist supervisor has a relationship with her aunts. Does that make sense? The other consideration is that she's a student in a, another program. And since in Seattle... The program's mixed to some extent. Am I going to run into her in that way? And is my supervisee going to run into her at, at professional functions or something like that? Because essentially the client is becoming a therapist. And so we're all going to be in this together. And so that's, that's another consideration. So I considered all those things. I would like you to expand a little bit more on the supervise, the supervisor role. So what I understand, so if you were a therapist, if she was coming to you actually and wanting you to be a therapist, it would, according to the Code of Ethics, it would be unethical for you to do that because you cannot have a relationship in that way. Are you, I mean, technically for two years, I guess, is the, is the rule. Or you can't have like a relationship with other people. That, so how does that work with a supervisor? Or mm-hmm. do those rules not apply? Yeah. Well, we don't refer to ethical codes as rules. And we also don't typically say things like it's unethical. There's just ethical considerations and we have to consider benefit versus harm. So there's potential harm, but that's balanced by the benefit of setting up this person with a cheap therapist that I believe will be perfect for this person. This isn't just, I'm not just referring, you know, I'm not just saying, well, I have a, this supervisee that needs clients. I have a supervisee that I believe is going to work out very well. Fast forwarding in time, they did meet up and they love each other, okay, to the point where in her program, they found out that she's an LMFTA, meaning an associate, meaning that she's still under supervision. Her license, you know, isn't such that it's unencumbered. She's a recent grad. 
And her program is saying that she can't see an A. She can't see an associate. And she's lobbying now to the program saying that I love my therapist so much. I, you can't do this to me. If you make me sw- switch to an unencumbered licensed professional, I can't guarantee that I'm going to like my therapist this much. So my guess was correct. So the ethical consideration has to be balanced on that. For instance, in other communities, small communities, you might be the only therapist in town and there might be only 300 people in the town. So you're going to have a dual relationship with every single client you have. Now, if the if we consider them rules and we say you never have a dual relationship, then that therapist will not be able to help this community and this community cannot benefit from this therapist. So it's not that there's rules. It's just like what's what's the harm versus benefit. So the decision making that I had in my head was, am I exploiting this person or this supervisee? And I immediately said no, because there's really no exploitation. I don't get anything out of this. I mean, I guess you could argue that I'm getting favor from my supervisee for referring her to her. You know, my supervisee might be in debt to me or something, but but that's in terms of my professional life, I can say not something that I'm too worried about. Okay, I have a question. I was wondering if in your decision-making process, did the fact that um, this potential client was a... Uh, student in counseling influence your decision? Had it been somebody maybe more vulnerable or um, suffering severe symptoms, might you have made a different decision? It's a good question. Yes. I don't remember specifically thinking about that, but if I had heard that this person had multiple issues, I mean, I always think about that anyway. I mean, if it was presented to me that she had schizophrenia or something something like that, I wouldn't have, even though I thought she might be a good match for my supervisee, I wouldn't have referred her to that person uh, because my supervisor, this particular supervisee doesn't specialize in schizophrenia. So if they, if I thought they had bigger issues, yeah, yes, yes, totally. So, so if I thought that the niece of my friends had a lot of issues regarding boundaries and, and being vulnerable to exploitation and perhaps really angry at her family then yes, that would have entered my mind in terms of referring her to someone that's connected to me. Because, you know, there's a lot of circumstances one can imagine where the therapy might be harmed by referring her to one of my supervisees because she'd, she'd be paranoid about me and my relation and what might get back to her family. So yeah, that's, that's true. But I didn't hear anything like that. And I, and, and I know this family well enough to know that that wasn't a problem. So what happened was I told the aunt to have the client contact me directly and she did. And so I provided her the name because I wasn't sure if she was wanting me to be involved, you know? And so that was another question. Instead of providing the names to the aunts, I provided the names to directly to the person and she was communicating that she was very appreciative and really wanted that kind of referral the kind of referral that was personal, you know, not just like, give me names of therapists. She was actually asking me and knew me, you know, well enough to say, I trust you to give me a, someone that's tailored to me. So that's another consideration is the client's asking me as essentially to s- send someone to her that is connected to me, which is another thing to think about is the client initially 
okay with and informed that I'm referring someone that's connected to me. And so she's informed of that. She entered into that voluntarily. So the main question is, to me, is, is my supervision with my supervisee compromised by this? And or is the therapy between the therapist and the client compromised by this? Versus the benefit of giving this referral. So I ask you guys, what can you imagine off the top of your head to be a potential problem with the therapy? I can imagine the aunt coming to you, coming to you and wanting to know kind of details about what's happening Mm -hmm. and um, kind of putting you in the middle. Right. I mean, we could just hypothesize, you know, endlessly, but I could be talking about a therapist that I know and say, oh, this therapist I know was talking about our client, or I would never do this, but, and that information could be interpreted by the ants as I'm talking indirectly about their niece, and therefore I've broken confidentiality. So yeah, so those are considerations, and and essentially what I'm doing for myself in this instance is I'm agreeing to essentially create kind of a problem for me in my personal life, that if something like that happens, as you're proposing, Alicia, I have to be rude, essentially, to these to my friends and say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. And I have to be on my toes more with these people than and otherwise I would. Having said that, I almost never see the ants anymore. <laughs> not for, we're not on the outs or anything, but, you know, we were friends 20 years ago and... So the chance of us even socializing at this point is pretty slim, let alone uh, something coming up. But, you know, it could definitely happen and I would have to be careful. And I can also kind of see a situation where um, she would feel, not the aunt, but the, the client would feel like maybe maybe the aunt would see something in the client that she doesn't like or maybe that she's going through a really difficult time and having that be more pressure on you in the relationship Absolutely. in some kind of way. Yes. So these are all things that I considered. Honestly, I considered them very quickly. <laughs> I did not sit down for an hour and go back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I, I considered them in probably the span of a minute or two. And because you don't have a lot of contact with her, you were like, oh, this isn't probably ever going to be a situation anyway. Well, or I also know how to stop yes. this. I, I've been in so many situations like this that I reflexively know that if something comes up, I have confidence that I'll either know how to react or know to not react and consult or something. Because I get called a lot for referrals. I mean, I have a list you know, that I keep and people frequently call me for referrals and I have a lot of these sorts of dual relationships. You know, like a best friend of mine will ask me for a therapist and I'll refer him to a, th- a, a professor next door. So now my one of my colleagues, who's also a friend, mm-hmm. is an ongoing therapist for my best friend. And we're in a, you know, pretty involved, di- more direct than this dual relationship. But, but the benefit that my f- best friend gets from being connected with someone that I think will work out and did work out outweighs that problem. Plus, you know, my best friend is not the sort of person that would take issue with that or, or have the therapy be compromised. And my colleague, my fellow professor knows to never let on 
that he or she is even seeing my friend. And the difference in this situation is that you're a supervisor to this person. Right. Which is really complicated. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Is it too complicated for your paper? No, I yeah. think it's I think it's really interesting. Okay. <laughs> I was curious um, about, like, I don't know if you'd call it counter-transference or transference issues with your supervisor now, I wonder, or supervisee, um, if that's become an issue or you foresee that becoming an issue if your supervisee feels as though she's having difficulties with this client or... Um, if that was like something that came to your mind. Good. Right, right. That's a good question. So so say something happens between the client and the therapist, my supervisee, and they have a conflict of some sort. And now she needs supervision around that. And because of my dual relationship, because I like this, I have a relationship with this aunt because I mean with this niece of my friends. I have potentially, I've lost a little objectivity. She's not just someone that I don't know. She's someone that I know and have somewhat of a history with. Well, let's give an example. So say my supervisee says to me, so my client was talking about her aunts and saying how jerky they are and how terrible they are to her. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, you know, my my friends aren't, they're good people. And so it biases my supervision of my supervisee, which influences the therapy to the, to the client. So there's a whole slew of considerations in there. And if I'm not aware of that question, then I could potentially harm the client and the supervisee, I guess. So it's just a question I just have to always keep in mind. Are my interpretations influenced by my dual relationship? Am I, or am I being as quote-unquote objective as possible? Does that answer your question? Yeah, actually, I was more wondering about if your supervisee could end up in a position where she feels like in a bind of feeling like she can't help her client and then disappointing you, which in a sense, like I'm thinking of autonomy, like it's kind of up to her to kind of bring that to light and talk to you about it. But it could put her in a bit of a bind. Right. Like that she would potentially withhold information from him in order to like protect herself in the situation kind of. Yeah. Because she might think I would be against her, my supervisee, if certain information was, was around or something. Yes. So that's something to consider. I, I have, I've been working with the supervisee for two or three years, probably three or four years, actually. And so we have a pretty good relationship, and I am confident that we would be able to manage a situation like that. Plus, it's really hard to imagine a scandal of that sort occurring in this group. But yeah, that's a a consideration. Does the benefit outweigh that potential harm? Because that's certainly something that could happen. So what we ended up doing as a result of another consideration is once they entered therapy, I said, and I do this frequently with my supervisees, as I said, offer to your client the opportunity for you to never discuss your case with me, if this makes sense. So I'm telling the supervisee to say the following to the, to the client. My supervisor is Kirk, and if you don't want me to ever discuss you with Kirk, then that's okay. I will get supervision somewhere else. What do you want to do with that? It's completely up to you. And so that was offered 
the client said she didn't mind. So that's putting, again, the power in the client's. I, I was just going to ask if if things, let's say things did go wrong and, I don't know, you were sued for malpractice or something. Yeah. Um, how much would you have been covered by your supervisee's disclosure statement? Well, in the disclosure statement, it says that I'm her supervisor. I mean, we'd have to imagine what the suit would be, I guess. What do you, what, yeah. Well, let's imagine a scenario, I guess. So the client is harmed by the by the therapist. Are you saying she would sue me? Would you be at all a I guess, part of the situation? A part of that situation, yeah. Yeah. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of my supervisees, I am legally responsible right, for. So. Yeah. So they do anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm in trouble. But would you be covered by that disclosure statement? I'm not sure what you're asking, but if, if, the, <laughs> <Not either>. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> if the disclosure statement was a support for my defense, meaning that she claimed she was never informed, for instance, that I was the therapist's supervisor, and it's in the disclosure statement clearly stating that I was, then I guess the disclosure statement would help me in that way. Yeah. And it sounds like he would be protected by the consent that, that he asked for in the beginning to say, you know, I don't have to be your supervisor or you, um, she asked the client. To right. Do. And those would be documented not in not only in, in my notes. Right? Yeah. In her in her, in the therapist's mm-hmm. notes, but also potentially in her supervision notes and my supervision notes. Yeah. So that would be that would be good cover. Yeah. Um, I would just wanted to make a comment, and I know we have like one more question left. Sorry, but I really appreciate the way you talk about ethics because, <clears throat> I mean, we're just really getting into it in our class. Yeah. And it really kind of is being talked about, and this is my opinion. You guys might have a different opinion, but it's really being talked about as like as as rules mm-hmm. as like something that's um that's really something not not even just a standard to adhere to but then we have like a moral standard on top of that and um the laws are kind of like mixed mixed in that as well and hearing you talk about it like as like a weighing like just just kind of like a guideline where you weigh benefits and harm from mm-hmm. that's really helpful to Good. to understand like even how to view this like do you guys agree it's really helpful to hear. So I just wanted to make that comment. Do you want to ask? Yeah, it's it's common and perhaps comforting when we're given rules. Throughout the beginning of my career, really wanted the rules and was really upset. I mean, even for instance, like the the reporting of child abuse, for instance, has 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 exceptions to that rule, and it's very unsettling and anxiety provoking because I just want to know what to do. However. Therapy is not like that, and situations are much more complicated than that. So, right, it lends itself to a to a discussion of pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really helpful for me because I also like, especially with suicide and stuff. I hear that, and then child abuse also. I hear a lot of that, and it's really hard for me to like decide like whether I want to break this trust that's happening with this person or whether it's my obligation to report, even though I'm not really sure what's happening. Right. You know, so it's it's really helpful for me to hear you say that because I've like, I mean, and this happened kind of a while ago, but I off I I've been like, oh my gosh, did I make a wrong decision? Like from an ethical standpoint, did I make a wrong decision by not reporting that person yeah. and instead I just kind of helped her and thankfully it helped her it yeah. didn't really like you know I mean she didn't end up committing suicide but yeah so I, that's really helpful for me yeah I mean the guidelines are 
consult, 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 mm-hmm. and then document, document, document. Because that if you do get in trouble and you followed your supervisor's advice, particularly and, and potentially consultee's advice, then that bolsters your defense. I mean, the chance of us getting in trouble is really slim, you know, that, so, so that's, so that's there. But, but if something happens, yeah, you want to have consulted and, and documented that. So what recommendations would you have for us newbies entering the field? Like of regarding of, ethical practice. I see. Consult, 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 document, <laughs> document, document, <laughs> honestly, because there's a number of different benefits to doing it. One is, is that obviously you, two heads are better than one and 10 heads are better than two. And often in these situations, particularly when I was first starting out, like it's really hard to sift through the considerations. It's a very different way of looking at things. And there's so many random possibilities that you will never think of yourself, particularly in the beginning. So you really have to talk with as many people as possible. And then document, you know, is a cover your ass sort of thing. But also when you document, you're thinking about it. You know, you, you're, you're writing it out and you're like, oh, wait a second, I guess I need to go back to my supervisor and ask them this and then document that. And so there's a lot of benefits to that. It takes time, but each time you do it, it'll be faster each time you do it. You know, for instance, with this particular situation, it only took me a couple minutes to just run through all the possibilities and then act because I've been through it so many times. But the first time I was in a situation like this, yeah. And, and another thing is, is uh, another piece of advice is don't be paranoid. After ethics class, everyone's paranoid. They think they're all going to get sued and like this industry is a terrible thing to be in. And I'm telling you, like the risk is really slim. Clients like us, they're not likely to sue us. They don't want to hurt us. (laughs) We're empathic, nice people. The other thing is, is the situations that get you in trouble are pretty rare. And when they happen, if you consult, then you're, then you're probably okay. So, so don't, so don't get overly worried, but at the same time, don't become complacent and think that all your thoughts are fine. (laughs) Consult, consult, consult. I was, um, so our teacher mentioned that there was some cases online that we could look at. And so I spent some time looking for cases and there's some, there's some really funny ones in Florida. And the the things that these people are on the hook for are like dealing in their practice and like dealing drugs through their practice. And that really put a lot of things into perspective or like really doing some quite a lot of harm to. Right. Yeah. So this is, you know, small potatoes compared to that. Right. And the people that often review these cases when they're brought up to licensing boards are clinicians like us and understand how difficult these decisions are. And so, yeah, it has to be a, an egregious sort of obvious exploitation. So that would be an ex you're, you're in a dual relationship. You're the dealer and you're the therapist. And so the conflict of interest there, right, is pretty obvious. And plus, it's so abnormal, you know, like, who does that? So I have one more question. Um, I'm kind of wondering if if you are in a situation that was like a little bit more troubling than the one that you're in, like it was really, like you could really get into a lot of trouble. I'm kind of wondering what your particular steps would be. I know that we talked about consulting with people to kind of figure out what all the possibilities are, but what would you personally do from that, from that standpoint? Like, would you talk to a lawyer or would you like, what would you do to help safeguard yourself? 
There's a number of resources. I mean, obviously, your consultants and your supervisors are consultants to people to talk to. I have friends and colleagues whom are both lawyers and therapists and are experts in law and in ethics. I've had Joe Schaub on the podcast before. He's a he's one of those therapists slash lawyers, and he's taught both things at Antioch. And so he's often the first person I go to. And and he, you know, talks the way I do. He walks me through the situation. He doesn't just say, do this. He says, well, let's talk about it. What do you, what, you know, what's this, what if this happens? What kind of person are we talking about? And so there's also your professional organizations. I hope you're, Aaron, a member of AAMFT. Are you not? Okay, well, you, you will be soon. And your ACA organiza- organizations have a benefit to the members around legal and ethical consultation. I was just talking to one of these people at WMFT at the conference a couple of weeks ago, and they said, don't ever say, so I'm in this situation, what should I do? This is what he said. He said, ask as if you're just curious. Or you have a friend in this situation. Yeah. And you can't even say I have a friend because we're all supposed to report right. Professional any duty. situation. So you just say, so I'm curious, if I was in a situation like this, blah, 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 blah. Because if you say it's you, he now has to report you if you don't report yourself. So, um, so that's just a little tip there. But so at WMFT, they have a legal department offer advice and they have an ethical department to offer advice and they say that's you know it's a wonderful service for for members and is it important so i'm asking this question because um our teacher also said something that was really interesting where she said if you ever got called to the board for something that all the steps that you took would be taken into consideration absolutely so if you didn't take any steps or if you took improper steps or whatever then it would look very poorly against you that's right so consulting, talking with a lawyer. That's and right. Yeah, what I often tell people is, say there's an ethical dilemma and you have choice between A or B and you choose A and you don't consult and you get sued and you go to court and you get in trouble for A and you, and you have a consequence. Scenario two, you both, same situation, A or B, you choose A after you consult with the appropriate parties, you go to court, they, you're, you're much less likely to get in trouble. So you could do the exact same thing. So it's not what you did. It's what your process was in deciding what to do. Yeah. So because it's essentially professional negligence to not consult when you're in a sticky situation. So that's why I consult, consult, consult. And then you need to document, document, document because... You can say you consulted, but it's much more impactful if you have documentation of the consultation. So would you consult, I mean, obviously you're in a different position than we are, but uh, would you recommend that we consult with colleagues in addition to other people? I mean, obviously if we were in supervision, then we would consult with that, but who else would you recommend? Yeah, supervisors, colleagues, friends that are in the business. Ethics board. Ethics board, yeah. Me. People sometimes ask me questions about ethical dilemmas, and all that's legitimate consultation. Cool. 
Um, so I've been actually wanting to ask you this for a long time, and it's kind of it's something that's been brought up in our ethics class a few times. I have very strong opinions about this, so that's why I wanted to ask you. And I was actually going to email Alicia, you. Alicia, strong opinions. <laughs> I was actually going to email strange. you and say, would you talk to me about this? Um, and I've written other professors about it and gotten their feedback. But I'm kind of wondering what you what is your personal opinion on uh, uh, self-disclosure of the therapist uh-huh. to the client? Well, I've done a, a lot of literature review on this, and I plan on doing a podcast about it. And it's found in research, and self-disclosure is a very complicated topic. But in general, if used sparingly and wisely, it is a benefit to client that if you don't do, you're actually foregoing the benefit that you can get out of it, that you can't get from other things. For instance, I had a new client yesterday who is going through a really difficult breakup. And as a way of normalizing, I I said something along the lines of, I said something like, well, I know from my personal life and from talking with clients that what you're going through right now is very normal and that it could get worse as time goes on. And so I wasn't like, let me tell you the story about being here, being dumped when I was in high school. I'm going to tell you, know, I'm going to tell you, well, my whole, it was the tiniest little, but, mm-hmm. but imagine if your therapist said that. Yeah. It's, it's a tiny little message of, I know how it feels to be dumped and I know how, how, how much hurt, how much pain, the depth of it. I, I'm not going to look lightly at this situation, <laughs> but I didn't say any of that. I just said, I know personally and professionally. And that was, but that's a self-disclosure. And I used it strategically in that way because I, I wanted him to understand that I understand how, how deep it can go. I think there's a multicultural aspect of that too. Uh, we were talking about it in a class I had yesterday, like with, uh, Latino populations and native Americans, there's a part that they want you to share. It's part of their culture that kind of like a person that's helping them share a part of their life too. And so I could see where not doing so could be like a huge barrier to, to therapy. Right. It's also kind of a power play to not disclose it's sort of like, I'm above you. You have to tell me everything about you, but I, I'm i not going to tell you anything about me because I'm I'm up here and you're down there. I'm, it's, I'm exaggerating it. But on the other hand, I almost never self-disclose. <laughs> it's very – I mean, I probably go sessions with clients and, and not self-disclose at all. Having said that, everything's a self-disclosure in terms of what you're wearing and the way you, your office looks and all that kind of stuff. So you always have to think. So you're, we're always self-disclosing. But what you'll hear when people start talking about ethical concerns, and maybe this is what you're talking about, is there's this tendency for the vocal minority of paranoids to take over the conversation. And for the majority of people that have a more nuanced point of view, like, well, it kind of depends for them to be silenced because it's so much easier to, you would do what? That's unethical. 
And and if you don't, if you're not an expert, because of course you're not, your students, then you have no way of responding to that. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess, because it's easier to say you're not going to do something because it's unethical than to enter into a nuanced conversation of when it might be unethical and when it might be, you know, it gets hard to respond to that. And so the vast majority of people that want to be more flexible just don't say anything. Is that what you're experiencing? Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think, I do believe it's contextual. I do believe it depends on the population that you're working with. And I mean, I know that there are certain considerations that I use in the work that I do now that, that wouldn't be the same in a private practice, for example, um, just because of the population that I work with and just because of where I work. And I know that if I didn't give a little of myself that I wouldn't get anything from them. And, um, but I, you know, in a different situation, I know that I would have a different stance, um, but it works for me in there. And I, I've written to, like I said, I've written to other professors about it. I've talked to other people about it and they've been very hardcore that that's not okay. And so it's been something that I've really grappled with because it might not be okay, but it's working for me and I'm doing great work where I am. And I know that I'm not doing therapy on these people. It's, it's more like, it's more of a kind of a classroom workshop setting, but still it's, it's, I'm, I'm working by these standards that I'm learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's been something I've been really grappling with. And that's really helpful to hear you say that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the specific questions you were asking these other uh, colleagues or these other experts, so to speak, these other professors. But in general, it's widely known among experts of self-disclosure that it's, it's a good idea to use if you use it wisely. Again, it, you have to make it not about you. It, it, the shorter, the better. The more it has to do with providing empathy, the better. Uh, and there's lots of research showing the benefits to it. I mean, they've, you know, they've taken groups of therapists and said, don't disclose at all. Okay, now you group of therapists disclose in this way. And then they measure outcomes among the, the clients. And there's a benefit to self-disclosing. So it's evidence-based. <laughs> so it, you're actually denying the client that benefit by not using that wise disclosure. I mean, think about being in classes. I mean, imagine if your professors never self-disclosed. Like, that's not cool. <laughs> it feels weird, right? It's like it builds this weird expectation that, like, well, they don't have any problems. And I have problems. What's wrong with me? And a little self-disclosure from a professor that they have problems goes a long way to helping that. Well, it's, it's similar to clients. Why would you deny them that? Well, thanks for uh, agreeing to record this for the podcast. As I was telling you before we recorded, I'm always looking for ways to synergize my life, trying to integrate, you know, try to get two birds with one stone. Right now, it's like I needed to do this interview and I need to make a podcast. So I recorded this. So yay for me. Um, thanks for joining us out there. That was another podcast of Psychology in Seattle. Please take care of yourself and be ethical.